Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. Those are the first three verses of Psalm 26, which along with Psalm 28 are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, April the 20th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm John Green, and I'm your host. I thank you for being along today. Um, as we continue our studies in the book of Daniel, the book of First John, and the Gospel of Luke. And so today, remember yesterday, we had Daniel telling the king what his dream meant. And his dream meant that he was going to lose his mind, and he was going to live among the beasts of the field for seven periods of time. And so we move forward now, and we see Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. So a year later, he's walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and he answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And then a voice comes from heaven while he's still saying these things and said, The kingdom is departed from you. And you'll be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. So the dream is repeated to him. You'll be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. If you're old enough like me to remember this, one of the people that would come to your mind possibly when you hear that is Howard Hughes, who was at one time one of not only the wealthiest men in the world, but one of the most controversial, but also one of the, the most brilliant men. He did so many incredible and amazing things. He was almost like King Solomon in some ways with all he accomplished in his life. And then suddenly it was all gone and he was completely lost for the rest of his life, literally. He he never was a a normal (laughs) human being again. He lived like this. In spite of his fabulous wealth, he lived in, in closed, dark rooms the rest of his life. And he never trimmed his nails, and his hair grew long, and he just wasted away. And while he had everything in the world, it was as though he had nothing at all. And such was true for Nebuchadnezzar. And, and it was God's mercy and His grace that did this, actually. It seems like God's punishment on him, but all really that's happened is is that ultimately Nebuchadnezzar suddenly comes to himself and blesses the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his kingdom is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. And more greatness was added. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. There's something about this that also reminds me of Jonah. 
Because Jonah is walking in pride. He's walking in his own way. He thinks he's getting away with something. The Lord told him to go to Nineveh, and instead he goes the opposite direction and gets on a ship and thinks he has gotten away from God, goes and lies down in the hold and goes to sleep and misses the fact that there's an enormous storm on the seas. And then ultimately, he's still trying to preserve his innocence, so he tells them they have to throw him into the sea. He's walking in pride, and the king is walking in pride. And it's a great mercy of God that he has sent Daniel and the others to him because they're able to give him the truth and, and tell him about the God who has given him this great kingdom, not his might and his majesty, but it's because of God's greatness. And God chose him and gave him a stewardship over this kingdom. And until he recognizes that, then he can't have that kingdom back, and ultimately he does. And sometimes it takes people a long time to recover from being humbled. Being humbled feels like punishment sometimes. I've known people lose all kinds of things, lose everything that they had, and seen people just devastated by that loss who are angry with God because it shouldn't have happened to them. And then I see other people whose hearts are softened by that, who are quick to respond to God's movement in their lives and who then become like the most beautiful Christians in the world. Those who have been humbled by God and, and accepted that as goodness and not as punishment. That God wants something so much better for you. Wants to save you from so much that He took these things away so that you then might be the kind of person that He needed you to be. And He saved your soul by doing that because you had sold your soul for all those things of earth. And I've seen it again and again in people. And it's a beautiful thing when to see people who have lost something who now are praying for others not to. I've seen that in the last several weeks. We have, when we thought we might lose our son Will and we've been praying and we asked others to pray and, and one of the things that has absolutely broken my heart are the parents who have lost young ones who are praying for us. And God didn't answer their prayers, but they didn't give up on God. They doubled down in faith and belief, and, and it's a wonderful and a beautiful and a humbling thing for me to see them praying for us. And I love those people especially, and I'm positive God does too, because they continued to trust Him, and they continued to love Him, and they continued to believe. And that's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar is, is that, that God humbled him. But then he gave him greatness beyond what he had received before. Same with Job. It doesn't always happen that way, absolutely not. But here it does. And this pagan king, because he recognizes God, then recognizes that, that he's not, essentially. So we move from there into the gospel lesson today. And Jesus, remember yesterday he was in Nazareth and the people, they were ready to kill him. They were ready to drive him off a cliff because he wouldn't do the things that they asked. And then he quoted things against them that caused them to believe that he was calling them people who had abandoned God. And so now he goes down to Capernaum, still in Galilee, a place where he's done many things, frankly. It seems to be the place where John and James and um, Peter and Andrew 
from. He goes there and he's teaching again on the Sabbath, and it says they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. It's like having somebody who wrote the book interpret the book for you. At least it used to be. Now they use deconstructionism and say it doesn't really matter what you intended to say. It's only the the reader who is the only true interpreter, not the person who wrote it. Once you wrote it, it's out of your hands. But here, Jesus is the author of this book. He is the author of the Word of God. He is the Word of God. And so his teaching would have a particular authority that nobody else's would because he is the fullness of this word himself. He knows exactly what the author intended it to mean, and so his interpretation of it and his teaching of it are going to have a different ring of authority than somebody who didn't author this. And while he's teaching, there's a man in the synagogue who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Not helpful to have the testimony of a demon, especially when it points to Jesus of Nazareth. It's pointing towards a different sort of a direction. This is Jesus of Nazareth, right? Nazareth. Does anything good come from Nazareth? And then this statement about, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. If you do, then why? And so Jesus proves in the authority that he takes over this demon because the demon threw the man down and came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And then reports went about it from every town in the surrounding region. There's this power that Jesus has as the Holy One of God. There's a power that he has over these spirits because they're all created beings and they were created by him and for him and through him. And so now these are rebellious spirits that he is speaking to and commanding them and they recognize his authority. They have no choice but to recognize his authority and his power. And it's one of the things that people say, people, you know, that, that Satan knows who Jesus is. He knows who God is. But that confession doesn't lead to righteousness, doesn't lead to the right thing. It led to rebellion against God. I don't want something greater than me, and I refuse to accept his authority over me. And that's what actually is the description of sin. I reject God's authority over me, and a failure to repent of sin and to confess of sin is exactly that. It's a statement of rebellion and saying, I don't accept God's authority. I don't accept his definitions. I believe that what I have transcends sin, and it's not sin, no matter how God defines sin. And so we all ultimately will be humbled, and it's best if it happens in this life. And John comes, and, and he's preaching one really, really basic message in, in this whole passage, and, and it's God is love and love one another. That's it. Let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God, because God is love. And in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, that we might live through him. He's just repeating John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. 
He says, this is true love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then he goes on a little later to say that we love because he first loved us. We, our movement of love towards God is completely based in our acceptance of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. It's the acceptance that God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for us and provide the propitiation for our sins. And then he says that, that because of that, we love God. And because we love God, we ought also to love one another. And he says, if you don't love your brother who you can see, then you can't possibly love God who you don't see. He does all this without getting to the, the critical point in some ways that that's we're created in the image of God. And so when Jesus says the second commandment is like the first commandment, then what he's saying is, is that we love God because he loved us. But then the second part of that is, is, is that the second commandment is like unto the first one in that we love those who are created in the image of God. And in so doing, we love God at the same time by loving those who are created in the image of God. And it's not always easy to do that. I know. I'm not that easy to love. I'm a pain in the neck sometimes. I'm sometimes a terrible human being, and I'm petulant and petty and all this other kind of stuff, and just Suzanne's probably got a better list. But it, we've got to get past that and recognize that, that my failure to love you, in spite of your whatever attitude or whatever it is, is something I'm not willing to withhold from myself. I don't hate myself because I'm all these things. No, I give myself forgiveness and try and do better. And so when we see one another, we have to recognize that, that that's one for whom Christ died. And therefore, for me to withhold love from one for whom Christ died is sin. And all he's got to say in all this is, is that, that if we confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And so we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. And by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is so also are we in the world. There's no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We haven't fully received and, and internalized God's love. If we still fear judgment, if, if we answer the question, you know, are you going to be in eternal life? If your answer is, well, I hope so, or I hope I'm good enough, then you haven't grasped the truth. You're not good enough. Jesus is. And if your faith is fully in him, then you recognize the depth of his love for you is that he will hold you to the end and never let you go. And so in that reality of Jesus' persistence on the cross tells me that he will persist in love for me no matter what it takes. He loves me enough to die on the cross. He loves me enough to take me by the hands, and to do what's necessary to get me to that finish line. Just like he did with Nebuchadnezzar, he, he did what was necessary to get his attention and turn him to God. We can do that willingly, or we can do it the hard way, like Nebuchadnezzar did.
The choice is yours.